Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin. Katherine Schuler is the queen of the diversity fashion industry. Originally from Pittsburgh, she moved to New York City after college graduation. And in order to get over her shyness, she started studying acting. But she was told she was too heavy for the acting modeling industry and would have to lose 50 pounds to get signed by the Ford agency as a straight size model. But instead of dieting, she sought revenge in comedy, creating a four-person troupe called The Nerve. Through irony and sarcasm, she demonstrated that it's the individual person that matters and that corporations benefit from making us feel badly about ourselves. Catherine was eventually signed with a special sizes division of Ford Models and became one of the first plus size models in an industry that was just forming in the 1980s. And she became an industry advocate and spokesperson for the full-figured demographic. Her love of live events garnered the attention of diabetics Max Sadak. Am I saying that right, Kat? Yeah, Zadak. Zadak. Okay. Who had been Luther Vandross's personal assistant until diabetes took Luther's life at the age of 52. When Max saw Patti LaBelle performing at Luther's tribute concert, he proclaimed, she's not a diabetic, she's a Divabetic. Kat continues her message of fashion diversity on the inclusive fashion runway, curating the popular fashion show Runway the Real Way. She teaches at Fashion Institute of Technology with the first plus size course in the Continuing Education Studies Division. Kat is the widow of Mark Grunwald, who was called the heart and soul of Marvel Comics until his untimely passing in 1996. But she works diligently to keep his legacy and contribution to the comic book industry alive. Welcome, Kat. (laughs) Oh, man, that sounds great. You're like, oh, I want to be that woman. Oh, wait a minute. How does she fit all that into her life? (laughs) That's a great question. Now, I I think I shared this with you when we talked several weeks ago, but I've spent most of my life as a therapist for uh, people who have some eating disorders or eating issues. Mm -hmm. And I just 
I am so taken by the fact that in the 1980s, before it was cool, you were saying, I am not going to play this game. Yeah, that, you know, and it was one of those things where I, I just couldn't. I, I didn't want to um, spend so much time and spend so much effort making some, uh, you know, larger corporate uh, entity happy with who I was. It just went against my hippie heart because it just, uh, that just seems to me uh, the antithesis of what I always believed in is about individual value and individual worth and not conforming. Um, because, it, you know, it's one of those things where you you feel like you're not good enough and the standard, standards are so ridiculous. And it was like, you know what, I am good enough. And um, I just, you know, you don't change the chicken, you change the pot. So I didn't like that whole, you've got to be this certain way in order to get this amount of money. And they told me, you know, you know how much money you could make? And, I, you know, I, I, I kind of weighed that. But it was like, you know what, I want to have a better time being me. And something will come to me, occur, occur to me, and I will figure it out my way. You know, that's that old song. So mm -hmm. I just said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to set out on this journey and um, lo and behold, you know, I, I, as I said in my bio, I was trying to get over this a kind of stage fright shyness, but I know where it came from. It came from me being the, the youngest in the family and my brothers and sisters being so much more accomplished and so much more uh, arrived. <laughs> you know, before I got there, because I mean, my sister's 17 years older than I am, and I was like, "Oh my God, how do you how do you compete?" So mm -hmm. I was just a little a little kid when I was making all these lists about what I could do that they could do, how I you know could fit in, how I could belong, and um, it you know it was one of those things where I just felt like I never really found my place in the family because I was so, you know, so young and so, um, uh, unaccepted, you know, and my brother teased me and my sisters were older than I was. And I was just a little sister and I never really had my own identity. I think that's where my shyness came from. And my parents were very strict. And, um, so I never really knew who I was until I, said, you know, I've got to find out who I am. So I kind of lashed myself onto my boyfriend at the time who was the best drummer in Pittsburgh. Hmm. And I just said, I've got to get to, I've got to get to New York. Cause he was talking about moving to New York. And I said, you know what? I can help him do that. And that'll help me. <laughs> I just knew in my heart that hmm. if I helped somebody get someplace that was their dream, somehow my dream would happen. So had, had you been to New York before? <laughs> I or did. I, oh, I had been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd been uh, probably, um, I would say, two years before my brother took me for a Christmas holiday. And uh, I just fell in love with it. It was just so great. It was just, it was so alive and there was so much to do. And everything you saw 
you know, in a magazine or on TV or in a movie, there it was. <laughs> you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was like right the before whole t- your eyes. Right, the whole town's landmarks were celebrities in my mind. You know, it's like when you see a celebrity, and it's like, oh my God, they really do exist. It's kind of like what I felt like, and I thought, I love this place. It's so, it's so grandiose, and it has so much to offer. But I, you know, I couldn't ever imagine myself moving here alone. So. Billy, who was the best drummer in Pittsburgh, provided me that out. So we just planned our um, escape. And uh, I, I, I was a pretty good student, so I told my dad, um, asked my dad if I could borrow his car. So um, we left at like 7 o'clock in the morning, and I drove him up to New York, um, actually to Philadelphia, where he had a place to stay, and then he was going to get to New York and uh, start the audition. So I got him to Philly, and then I turned around and came home. I didn't pull in into my into my dad's driveway until eleven o'clock at night. So I was gone from seven AM until eleven PM. Mm. <laughs> and I saw the curtain kind of move in the bedroom window <laughs> and I thought, Oh I hope I don't get damned when I get when I walk in the door. But nothing happened. My dad just said, um, I was worried about you, and uh, where were you? There's 868 miles on my car, and I said, Daddy, I had a very busy day, and he said, your mother's asleep, and I won't tell her, and I said, okay, so that's why my dad was cool. I put gas in the car, I didn't, there wasn't a ding on it, and I returned it in pristine shape, and um, the guards are with me, and Billy got, and Billy started uh uh, auditioning and gigging and, you know, uh, starting to, to get some bands were interested in him. And uh, the punk scene was happening in New York. So he started to audition for a lot of bands that were looking for drummers. And he got into the stilettos, which then became Blondie. So wow. he was in Blondie when uh, New York was just, you know, in the, in the mid-70s. And it was just, you know, uh, an... The, the world was your oyster in those days. Mm-hmm. And you could just make it up as you went along. And I didn't want to just be the drummer's girlfriend, but I was so taken by how those people invented themselves and how they lived by their wits and their creativity. And, you know, Debbie would come over and say, oh, I want to I want to put marimbas in this song, Man Overboard. And I thought, that is so cool. She's, that's her song. That's her band. That's what she's doing. She's got an idea and she's going for it. And I thought, mm-hmm. that's such a, a revelation to me. And I was like the little, the little fly on the wall taking it all in. That freedom. And, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she, there's been, you know, documentaries about Debbie Harry. And yeah. from what I recall, she, she was quite a bright and um, yeah. it, it just intrepid <laughs> young yeah. woman. Yeah. She was. She knew what she wanted. She would lay that band out like, um, you know, like a drill sergeant. And, you know, they, she knew exactly what was going on and what was happening. She wore the pants in the band, really. And mm. she would she would not mince any words. And she was very, um, she, she was coming into her own and she knew everybody. And everybody liked her. And you could watch her work a room. And uh, everybody wanted to know her. Everybody wanted to be with her. And somebody, when we were all hanging out together, said, she, someday she's going to be really famous. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, wow, that, 
that's that spark that I'm feeling. And we went to this David Bowie concert and we came back and she was so exhausted that she had, she was um, working in a hair salon then. So she'd been on her feet all day. She had gone to rehearsal. Then we went to this concert and she was just sitting on the couch going, I am so tired. And I thought, yeah, but you're doing what you want. You know, and it's a good kind of tired. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, I just learned a lot by watching from all those people's examples. And she um, was not uh, going to um, let anything take off, take off, take her off her path. That's what mm -hmm. I felt. She wasn't going to, she wasn't going to waver. I asked her if she wanted to do something and she said, no, I'm sticking to this music right now. And mm. I don't know if she was trying to be kind to me, but she just, she just didn't want to take her, her, her sights off the prize. And, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's, she, I heard some stories where she was kind of ruthless and, you know, she, you know, of course, when you're, when you're clawing your way to the top, you're going to step over some people and some people are going to fall by the wayside. Um, and you're not going to be everybody's friends in the end, but what an interesting thing to watch. I was 19 when I met her, you know, and well, I just, so she was yeah. really, that experience was really formative for you. Exactly. Exactly. And I talk about a woman's role that was, you know, she was, she was beautiful. She was talented. She wasn't perfect in, in any way, but she was making her path. And, uh, you know, she, she had the face of a model, but she was five two. So, you know, in those days it, it, you know, you had to be 5'10 and 114 pounds and modeling was only for the skinny and the tall. And, mm -hmm. um, so you, you wind up making your own niche and you define your niche by what you bring to it and how you carve it out. And you have to have, you have to have the chops. So that's why I think, you know, her getting to be as good as she was as a, as a singer and, uh, and trying to get the band, uh, to be as, as, as um, professional as possible. And, you know, Billy was, uh, it was my dream for him, I realized, because his mother was, um, she was an alcoholic when, you know, and she didn't really ever want to admit that. But she wanted him to come home and go back to school. He quit uh, school in his sophomore year. And, uh, you know, he was in the Mensa Society, so he was, you know, his IQ was off the charts and mm. she just thought he was wasting himself in the music business I and see. you're going to hit your wagon to a star. And she just kept dinging on him and dinging on him. And I was, you know, I, it, 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 it was really a difficult battle because she was just, you know, relentless and guilted him. He was such a good son. And so, uh, he wound up, you know, getting, getting into, uh, a whole spiral with a lot of people. There was a lot of dark stuff going on in that in that mm -hmm. uh, punk rock movement in those days, and a lot mm -hmm. of people were living on the edge. And, Sid Vicious. And oh all yeah, of those Drink, folks, drinking yeah. too much, too many drugs. Everybody was turning you on and tuning you in. And um, I just saw some things that were like, "Whoa, I, I don't think my body could take that." And you know, I just they were always pushing the envelope. So. Debbie had gotten out of that by that time, and she also knew that it was really hard on your looks. That that lifestyle, you had to take care of yourself because she's on the she's you know she's an icon now. Mm -hmm. She told me never sit in the sun. 
<laughs> she said, I never am going to sit in the sun. And I thought, yeah, we're fair blondes. You're right. We shouldn't sit in the sun. And, you know, she was just, uh, she didn't smoke and, you know, she, she didn't drink. We, of course, everybody smoked pot together because it was that generation we had passed around a joint. But she was well over uh, the being a junkie in a heroin days because it, it just robs you of your energy and your looks. And she didn't have an addictive personality and she could walk away from it. And she, as I said, had her eye on the prize and she knew exactly, and she was lucky she had Chris Stein in the band and he was, um, you know, she, he was the male balance of her, of her really testosterone female energy. But it was a really great lesson for me. Um, because uh, I lost touch with her after she kicked Billy out of the band and he went back to Pittsburgh. And I said, what do I want to do? And I got a taste of all that. So I went to acting school. I got into Screen Actors Guild. I went out on auditions. Um, and while I was um, uh, studying acting, there was a photography studio on the block. And this guy, David Steinberg, who was Eileen Ford's favorite photographer, said to me, you should... Um, try out for modeling and I'll do your book for you. I'll do your portfolio. So he shot my book and he set up the appointment and I was already, I went in and, uh, you know, this woman came out and she just, you know, had her glasses down on her nose. She flipped through my book and she said, you're too heavy. You know, mm -hmm. um, you gotta go and, uh, you have to lose like 50 to 70 pounds and then come back and we'll see. And she just turned and walked away. <laughs> It's like the devil wears Prada. Yeah, and I was like devastated after like putting my book together for months, and it was like go away and you know, get me the, the broomstick from the Wicked Witch of the West. And I was like, I, I oh my god, I remember walking out of there, talk about crestfallen, and I said, this is ridiculous. Why am I feeling like this? So I tried. You know, it was like, I'm going to give this a college try. And I, you know, I tried. I went to fasting farms and I tried to lose weight. And I got down to maybe like 139 pounds. I was about 160 pounds when they told me to do all that. So they probably wanted me down to about 115, you know. And I just, I got down to about 139. And I came back and I slept in my jeans and you know, I, I wouldn't eat. You know, it was just a, it was just a very difficult time trying to maintain that. And I realized mm -hmm. that my, my body was not meant to be in the 130s. You know, it wasn't, it was too much work. You know, it just felt like such a, such a difficult effort. You know, I was dancing and biking and, you know, watching my, my calories and, uh, you know, full-time job. Yeah, it was a full-time job and not one that I was, was happy about because I didn't ever felt, I didn't feel like I was losing the weight fast enough because my body, there's certain set points on your body that uh, your, your body just does, I'm not geared to be 114 pounds and I don't think the agencies want anybody unless they're naturally thin anyway, because they don't want to, they could torture you, but there's like a hundred you know, million girls who want to be models and they'll take the ones who come by it naturally. So I just knew it was an uphill battle and a losing game. And I felt so scrutinized by the industry. And I said, you know what? I am not going to model anymore. I'm just going to go. Uh, I'll do some theater. I'll get my juju back. And I 
I auditioned for this play and there were three guys and my acting teacher uh, who I was living with at the time. And, you know, we just said, hey, let's start a comedy group. You know, we're funny. And the Saturday Night Live was coming up and all these different you know, improv things were happening around town. And um, we were calling ourselves Saints and Synergy. And then it became like nobody could say Synergy. Um, and it was like, okay, we have to name ourselves something else. But I always said my acting teacher, my boyfriend, was an exposed nerve because he just was so eccentric and so um, intense. And um, and then, you know, I saw The Wizard of Oz and uh, The Cowardly Lion says, a knife. And I thought, <laughs> that's it. And it's the punk thing, the, 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 this, the, that, the clash, the, this. So the nerve was, you know, the nerve. And it yeah. was like, that's perfect because we said really outrageous and flamboyant and very uh, biting sarcasm and uh, very... Who were you making fun of? Who were your favorite targets at that oh, time? Well, we did everything from, well, it, you know, I was in charge of the... Um, the costume. So I went into the thrift shop and I saw all these business suits and I said, corporate America, you're going down. <laughs> wow. So I lambasted, we lambasted every institution. So it was education, it was finance, it was media, it was pay to, you know, religion. So we had a sketch, set sketches uh, for each one of those um, parts of the, the, uh, of society and we all came out in business suits as automatons and uh, one of the guys was in the audience serving drinks you know before the show so everybody thought he was a waiter so I come out with my clipboard and I said okay we're gonna we have to get we needed a fourth member of uh, of the of the nerve the firm needs a fourth member that's mm -hmm. what it was the firm the firm needs a fourth member <laughs> we need fresh meat so let's oh, let's go out and 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 suit somebody for success so I had the business suit in my hand and they drag Scott onto the stage while <laughs> with his with the drinks flying and I, I his those were Velcro, so I just ripped them off, and he, <laughs> so they came off with one fell swoop, just ripped them off, and then I, um, I spun him around, and he, uh, I put this giant USDA stamp on his butt, you know, so oh, we, we stamped him, gosh. and I said, we're going to dress you for success, so we carefully put all these clothes on him and sang this song about, you know, how we were going to take over his mind and we were going to take over his life and we were going to take over his soul. And then we all became these automatons and we sang this song about, um, you know, uh, self-esteem and uh, how, how nothing seems right and they don't know who we are and I don't know who I am and I don't recognize myself and I think my verse was because we took the song and we broke it up and I, I bite into a Twinkie and there isn't any cream I think that it's because I am lacking self-esteem <laughs> I, I need the nerve we all need the nerve and then the next person would do his you know his little rendition of what why he was lacking the nerve and then we would do comedy 
trick in four parts. And so we were like automatons. And that was it. That we just were, you know, business suits were the basic of it. And we just put wigs and jackets and, you know, props on ourselves to become the next character. And, you know, I was, you know, we did, we did everything from education to finance to media to, you know, uh, movies. And, you know, so it, it was a really fun a really fun time, and it was. I had to write, direct, produce, costume, market, <laughs> oh everything. My and then we'd get into a cabaret, and the whole sight lines were all different. And we had to go to, you know, we went on the road to colleges, and all that was the stage was different, and the back, the back, and the front, and the entrance, and the exits. So it was really great to keep yourself on your feet. And we, That's, I played, yeah. yeah. So I played violin, and I was. Uh, I played um, almost like a Tammy Faye Baker type of of uh, woman, you know, with a, with a, oh, uh, Sister Evie and uh, the Reverend Oral Love instead of Oral Roberts. So, oh, you know, we were oh, all... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like, you know, I'm just picturing this shy girl from Pittsburgh. Yeah. And then you just like, your world just opened up. Right. And I and gave myself were... permission, and yeah. my my acting teacher was my boyfriend, and he would write sketches for me, and they would be these really lamp, outrageous kind of things that I would have to do, and I just really found myself, and I thought it was the best thing that I ever did, and lo and behold, we were probably three or four years into doing The Nerve, and... Um, a modeling agency came backstage and said, you should model. And I'm mm. like, lady, you don't know what I've been through. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, no, no. There's this new thing coming up. It's called plus size modeling. Mm -hmm. You should try out for that. And I said, you should write for my act. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I never heard plus size and modeling together. And some light went off in my head saying, Finally, they're realizing that people aren't just one size. Mm. So I said, do I have to lose weight or do anything really dastardly and dramatic to my body? And she said, no, you may have to fat up because you might be a little thin. And I was like, you're kidding me. I might be too thin. I was like, okay, sign me up. Oh, so I went. goodness. So I got signed. And the rest is, as they say, history. And... I was on the runway because sometimes I was the only plus-size model because in those days, they didn't have a whole lot of models. So they would stick one or two in the show and put them in a size 14 and call it a day. But when I was out on the stage, everyone was clapping and cheering, really? standing on their feet. And I was like, I'm striking a chord. I'm striking a nerve. Is part of it, do you think, I mean, obviously you were an outlier and you were doing something totally different, but you, I mean, as you're talking about it, you're obviously so exuberant. Do you think part of it is the way you also presented yourself, you know, forgetting about the size of your body, but, yeah. you know, you did people feel your energy? I think that you hit a really good point, Nicole, because you... You have to own who you are, and when you're on that runway and you are strutting your stuff, you really have to feel the empowerment of it. And I think I was so tired of of being of beating myself up for not fitting into their mold that I just said, you know what? 
I bet there are at least 12 people in the audience who are sick and tired of trying to diet their way mm -hmm. into something they're not. And lo and behold, there were not only those people, but their husbands and their daughters and their uncles and their cousins in the audience who were tired of them beating themselves up and mm -hmm. feeling less than. And uh, they would stand up too. So men were standing up. Otters were standing up, you know, everybody was standing up for this woman, and I suddenly realized, wow, talk about niche. It just struck me that um, I was the embodiment of what they wanted to feel like as an underdog. You know, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you sort of it's interesting because it sounds like it was this combination between this joy and energy, but also and go to hell, too, right? And you know, and, and, <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, and kind of a, of a well, I'll show you. Um, and I, I can do this and write my own ticket, and um, and it was really cool because I thought to myself, you know what, there are. 45 million women out there in those days who 30% of the population, I'll take a dollar from each of them. Mm, <laughs> you know, mm. if that's my niche, if that's who, uh, who I represent, then I'm going to market to them because they need to feel what breakthrough I just felt and they need to feel good about themselves. And it suddenly became a platform. It suddenly became much more than just clothing. It became much more than just modeling. It became, you know, a statement about being different, being yourself, mm -hmm. um, being healthy. Because the message was not, come on, girls, get as big as you want. We got clothes for you. That's not what I'm about. So I'm not, um, oh, yeah, I can love you and you're 500 pounds. I never wanted my larger to be taken as an interpretation of the fact that I could condone um, that that whole uh, you know, unhealthy lifestyle and so I was always searching for uh, you know some sort of charity and I tried the eating disorder the NIDA and then EDAP but I just felt like it wasn't the right fit because I, I hadn't gone down that anorexic path I had gone down the bulimia path a little bit. I had tried to diet myself, fasted myself into oblivion. But I didn't. I couldn't really um, understand anorexia, and I didn't feel like I. Did. I wanted to be part of a charity cause that I couldn't wrap my head around. You know, mm, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. You know, I'm really curious because. You, obviously, this is just in your pores. I mean, this is just who you are. You you believe in it. You know, you live it. And I'm guessing you have students at FIT who are starving themselves and who are, you know, really trying to be the typical model. And it's, it's a form of self-torture. Yeah, flagellation. Um, How do you deal with that? Well, I just live by example. I don't want to lecture to anyone because their journey is their journey and their path is their path. And either they're going to be successful at it. And like my sister is perfectly fine dieting her way into uh, a size four and eating a raisin and a half a cup of jello and a, and a tab. 
for lunch. You know, she mm. doesn't really like food all that much. She really doesn't have an appetite or, 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 you know, so I think those are the kind of people that, um, you know, they, they have come by it. Maybe they're trying to be the good girl or the middle child, or this is how they get accepted because they're the right body weight. But, uh, you know, then my sister developed cancer and she got a colostomy bag. And I said to her one day, would you take that colostomy bag over my 70 pounds? You know, and she had to really think about it because mm-hmm. I know that you know, she said, well, the doctor said it's enigmatic and it's idiopathic and they don't know what caused the cancer of the colon. Mm. You know what? You didn't eat, drank. Mm. I never saw her without a can of soda in her hand mm. and Diet Coke. I used to call it the blue wall. She had Diet Dr. Pepper, a whole refrigerator in the basement full of Diet Dr. Pepper. Ugh. So she had always, Poison. yeah, she had always just filled herself up with of that diet soda and not eating, um, you know, uh, healthy foods, uh, and dieted herself. Yeah. She was, she was, uh, emaciated and undernourished. She was, uh, you know, a, a very acceptable weight, but, um, she had very thin hair, you know, her nails were always splitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she developed, colon cancer and she has a colostomy bag now it's just and she just will not own the fact that she just drank too much diet soda um all her life and that's that's one thing where i was like oh you know you can learn something from your sisters and your family members and watch their behavior and just realize oh you know i i never drink diet soda just and I don't smoke because my mother died of lung cancer. So, you know, I just, you know, you have to take these lessons that, that people's lives and their loss of life teaches you. And, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, at 64 that, you know, my blood pressure is 128 over 75. And I still have the energy to have people say, I don't know how you do all the things you do. And mm-hmm. I think, you know what? I'm passionate and um, yeah, I had a little event blip on the screen, and I did have a stroke nine years ago. Mm-hmm. But it was just because I had two holes in my heart and a clotting gene, and I drove down to an event I was doing for diabetic for my charity for diabetes at a hospital, and I turned around and I didn't stand up, and I didn't. I usually cycle and you know walk and everything in New York City, and I didn't do that for ten hours straight, and I a, see. A, a clot formed in my leg. Like so, what you hear, what happens on airplanes for that's people. That's it. That's it. And then you get that DVT, that deep vein thrombosis. But the the clot went through the holes in my heart and lodged in my brain and took out my mobility. Uh, But luckily, I was not hiking or anywhere like in... I was four months before I was in Panama, I would have been in the jungle. They could not have transported me to the best hospital in town where I was when I wound up. So, um... I got the TPA and uh, that's tissue plasma, tissue plasma activant. That's the TPA. It's uh, 
they shoot that into the clot in your brain and mm. it's a clot busting drug and you have to get that within three hours of you having a stroke. So, I see. Before yeah. it does too much yes, damage. Damage. So that's wow. the stroke is really called it should be called a brain attack because that's what it does. It attacks your brain in one area, but then it spreads and that's what happened to Luther. He lied there in uh, behind closed doors couldn't reach a cell phone. I don't even think there were cell phones in 2002 that people had all the time on them. Um, but he lay there and he, he couldn't get that TPA. And by the time he got to the hospital, it had taken out every faculty. He was practically oh in a coma. So after I had my stroke, which I happened to have my stroke on World Diabetes Day. The last day of the tour of Mike Over Your Diabetes, I have a stroke. I mean, my timing is impeccably <laughs> surreal. And, uh, you know, Max had found Luther in the coma, and he then gets this message that I had had a stroke. And oh, that's it how it is. Mean, for our listeners, yeah. we're talking about Luther Vandross. Yeah. Just yes. to remind you. Yeah, yeah. so Luther was... was um, the reason for the diabetic after uh, Max had seen Patty LaBelle sing and said she's not a diabetic, she's a diabetic. So here we are having our final, we've been on the road with this show for six years. It's our final performance of Make Over Your Diabetes. It's World Diabetes Day. I usually mm -hmm. do the little black dress show instead. We did the little blue dress because... Blue is the color of World Diabetes Day. I had the Empire State Building change, and I had a stroke that Oh, morning. my goodness, goodness. <laughs> and everyone was like, what happened to her? So um, he came to see me the next day, and I was in the same hospital that Luther was, and he actually got me the same people to rehab me as um, Luther had gotten. So I think in a weird way, it was Luther's way of thanking me or something for all the work oh. that I was doing because you, I was so in that. You knew him? You Did you know Luther? No, I was oh. just a huge fan of his in the 80s. I see. Oh, my gosh. And I uh, I got to do a, a panel, a judging panel, uh, for this Miss Plus USA. And uh, Max was on the panel, and we met, and he said, um, I have diabetic and it's oh, it's a t-shirt right now but i know we could do more with it so you know we were on each other's radars and i said my um one of my friends wanted to take my business to the next level because she was in this landmark forum project and they have that angel project so the angel project was to make somebody else's business get us to the next level so she chose me so we did this whole curvy uh, convention kind of thing, and um, I gave Max a table. I gave Diva Bedic a table, oh. and it, yeah, so I had a cosmetic company there. I had a fashion show, and he came up to me, and he said, I have all these organizations that I'm going to target, and I think we can do something together. And I'll never forget him saying that because it was like, that's why you do things because it really did get my business to the next level. He went to the cosmetics company the next day. They staged a big event at the cosmetics showroom, and we had um, these little makeover stations that we would do, you know, Glamour, Fearless, Denial's Not My Style, Twisted Shout, Grab what Green was Go. The one, what was the <laughs> one something about 
um, Sugar's the bitch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was on the t-shirt. Sugar's the bitch, not me. <laughs> yeah, it's not your grandmother's diabetes by any means. <laughs> And lo and behold, Novo Nordisk called us like and heard about this whole program we were doing and said that they were looking for someone to uh, fund and to uh, underwrite. And so we had funding from Novo Nordisk for six years. Wow. And we went on the road with Make Over Your Diabetes and we, could do, we, we created these great uh, programs uh, all around candy-centric holidays like Halloween and Easter, and I created this character named uh, Aida Romaine. So this Aida Romaine <laughs> character is like this giant Lady Gaga meets Carmen Miranda dressed as a vegetable. It's like all of the great yes. stuff that you had done right. had just come together right. Right. In, and, and in a way, I mean, and, and through your life, and I, as I said to you earlier, I really had to shorten your bio, you have been so much about service. Yes, I love that. You got that. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that. Tell me about, you know, because, of course, this is a show about aging and zestful aging. Mm. And part of that is living with some kind of purpose. Yeah. Um, tell me about your, what it means to you to be of service to others. Yeah, I, I really thought that... Um, I wanted to be the person I wish I had met when I first moved to New York because that was such a confusing time for me. I was so shy. And if I had it all over to do all over again, I would have made Debbie's costumes. I would have become a photographer. I would have grabbed the camera. I would not have been the drummer's girlfriend. I would have struck out on my own and carved out my own niche in that environment and mm. um and that's what everybody else was doing and i realize it now so when everybody asks me how to do what i did and what what's the path i say i got two words for you include yourself include mm. yourself and that's a simple mantra that resonates because I'm not really serving you so much as I'm mirroring your desires and your passions and your need to express yourself and to find your purpose. And I'm just merely holding up a, 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 a reflection and saying, go do it. Who am I to say you can't do it? If I you know nobody told me, uh, take your dad's car and move to New York, but I thought it up and I suddenly realized, gee, if I help somebody else, it's really helping me. <laughs> so I've kind of made that my my mantra is to not do it for somebody, but to give them an opportunity. You know, kind of give them give them a meal, and you know, you, know, you feed them for a day, teach them to fish, and you you know, you feed them for a lifetime. So if I can just do one thing to just allow somebody to express themselves and feel like they can do it, there's no limit to what I get back everyone's like aren't you afraid of you know people stealing your thunder and you you're given you're so generous and i said no not really because i get it back tenfold because you know they know that it's coming from a genuine place but also i think that this whole runway the real way platform now this diversity platform that i've morphed into is this giant sandbox that we can all play in and um <laughs> You know, it, it's very reminiscent of my, my first husband 
Mark Grunewald, when I met him in 90, 1990, he was the senior executive editor of Marvel Comics. And just imagine an anarchistic, creative, uh, hyper-evolved um, kind of, uh, of company like Marvel with all these genius nerds. <laughs> and my husband was a ringleader. And it was a lot of deadlines and a lot of motivating people. And he made it fun. And he uh, gave them the uh, permission to, and, you know, he hired you for the job because he trusted what you could do. And then he gave you the permission to do it and check back with him if you needed any guidance on it. But uh, for the most part, he would be this incredible ringleader, you know, just, just incredible support system for everyone. And um, I learned a lot about the bullpen uh, and how the, comic book businesses. One day you're the letterer and he's the editor and she's the writer and he's the colorer. And then the next book, it all switches around and that he's the editor and she's the writer yeah. and she's the letterer, you know, and they all just, it was this giant project of getting these books out. And Mark taught the class on how to do it. He taught the editors how to do, follow in his footsteps. And he did it with exuberant energy and with mm -hmm. extreme passion and comics were really all he knew and it was his his most favorite form of entertainment and I just you know when I met him we just we just kind of bonded on that kind of big kid gets to do what you what you always felt. I was always sewing and I was always, you know, having makeover stands for the neighbors instead of lemonade stands. So I knew that I wanted to do fashion. <laughs> I knew that was what I was meant to do. Where and, did you meet, Kat? Where did you meet, Mark? Oh, uh, well, we had a go-see because I was in the plus-size agency then. And the um, Marvel had come to the plus-size agency to get women she-hulk because they wanted to do this big campaign with comic cons and dress all these women up in she-hulk costumes and take them to the comic con and um so they wanted to uh you know have a superhero stable of women so they went to the plus size agency Gosh. And so I came in, we all came in, it was like, what is this comic book world here? And, you know, we had to, you know, get in our loincloths and uh, pose for the camera. And he said, oh you'd God. be better for the Enchantress character, the Enchantress. <gasps> oh, what a line. <laughs> I know. What a line. That's a great pickup line. Oh, my God. I'm from a comic book guy. And, um... So we talked during the interview, and you know, I told him I had a comedy group called The Nerve. He had a comedy group called Cheap Laughs, and I hadn't really read comic books, but I knew that this was modern day mythology. That this was, you know, I was certainly um, I was tapped into Mad Magazine. I was tapped into oh, yeah. you know all that kind of thing, which is definitely related. You know, so National Lampoon, I was a big follower of Saturday Night Live and, you know, uh, Spinal Tap and all those, those oh movies. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, we can all quote right. Spinal Tap. Right? I know. And In Living mm -hmm. Color and all that. So um, there were just so many things in common. And so I said, you know, we should probably, I said, do you have a card? 
<laughs> this is like this is ridiculous. There's models that need to see you, and so he said, "Yeah, yeah, let's let's um let's have dinner or something." You know, um, he said because you're definitely not the the, the She-Hulk type because we are looking for you know women with like steroided out muscles. And I said, "Yeah, uh. that, you're you're going to the plus size industry for large women, but you know probably that's going to be." A specific body type that you're going to have to go for. Maybe, you know, try a gym. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, Did you guys laugh a lot together? Oh, yeah. And, you know, he was just a, he was just one of those creative geniuses that never stopped thinking about, thinking up ideas. And I, I got bit with that because I realized that he thought, he saw this creative spark in me and I thought, well, gee, I, I don't, I only thought that I had that creative spark when I was around other people in the nerve and, and he just, he just taught me to trust my creativity and he would push the envelope in terms of that comfort of that creativity all the time. He would give me all these things to do. We had, you know, the, the Halloween party and yeah, I was doing all these these things that I, I'm not an artist and make this devil head out of red pepper. And I was like, mm. I don't know how to make a devil head out of red pepper. He said, you'll figure it out. And mm. you know what? You couldn't let him down. He was constantly making me do things that, <laughs> that never ever let me stay in my comfort zone. And mm. I always exceeded my expectations and his, which was really pleasantly surprising because he would criticize you, but if he didn't criticize you, it was okay because he was not going to miss his word if he didn't like it, believe me. So mm -hmm. I just felt like, wow, I can really, I can do this. And so I, you know, we got married in like 1992 and, um, it was a really fun wedding. Like you can imagine a comic book wedding. Um, oh and gosh. it was so much fun. Wonder in Woman York, and Captain you? America. Yeah. Wonder Woman and Captain America on the top of the cake. And um, and then three years and, and ten months later, he had a Monday morning heart attack. So mm. he was very stressed out by his job. Unfortunately, you can love your job too much. And Marvel was going through a lot of bankruptcy in those days, and they were trying to get somebody to buy them. And the stock had gone from 56 to $3. And they, you know, Ron Perlman was Really? Yeah. It, I yeah. don't think people know that no. Marvel Comics was in bankruptcy yes. ever. Yeah. 1995, they, the movies had not hit. CGI and all those movies had not hit the only superhero movies that were out were Batman and Superman and they did well at the box office but Marvel had yet to get a hit with one of their characters because Batman and Superman are DC Comics so Marvel had not not broken out of that mold but he was constantly saying you know people were sending him little clips of things and he said very soon they're going to have technology to do the, the the superheroes the way they should be done and lo and behold he was right and he was he was actually taking screenwriting classes too because he was an editor he wrote quasar he wrote um uh, a few books but he edited over three thousand titles and he wow. wrote captain america from 1985 uh, to Actually, a little bit before then, um, and they and they took the they took 
they he wrote it for ten years and they took the book away from him. They gave it to some hotshot kid. Uh, they didn't make him editor in chief. Ron Perlman was just bringing all these corporate raider cronies in and giving them two million dollar parachutes and like calling it a day. And the company was just spiraling down. And Mark's parents had. Um, uh, his mom had cancer and his father had a Lyme disease that kicked in uh, like a Lou Gehrig kind of uh, oh. ALS thing. Oh, my so goodness. these two bastions of his life that he just loved so much, his family and Marvel, were spiraling down. And you've got to believe that Mark was one of those superhero types that wanted to put his cape and tights on and save the world and save his world. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't do it. And it broke his heart. He mm -hmm. died of a broken heart. I'm oh. absolutely convinced of it. He's 42 years old. How how can a jogger, oh non-smoker, you know, how can he not have something going on brewing in his body that would cause that? And you know, he was for is he was classic pace. First day of vacation, grew up in our country home. First you know, Monday, Monday morning heart attack. And, you know, and it happens because you relax. He had two weeks of stressful, stressful, stressful trying to, to, to put that company together and keep everybody's spirits up because it was like working at a morgue. Imagine it went from this really fun place to morgue. You know, they were firing people. He had to fire 25 of his friends. And oh this man, yeah, and he oh trained goodness. them since they were 15 years old. He had pictures of everybody he worked with on his walls. I mean, who does that? Most people want to get away from people they work with. Mm. He comes back home, and there they are all watching him work. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, and I, I saw some posts that you put up just recently about yeah. you going into the public schools in New York and talking to the kids about yeah. the the Marvel Comics uh, yep. dynasty. Yeah, and the, the legacy that he left. He was mm. the heart and soul of Marvel Comics. And, um, you know, when he, when he passed away that morning, it was a shock to me. And I opened up the will, and it said, I want to be cremated and my ashes put into a comic book. So I had to make that happen with Marvel. Okay. So um, I had him cremated, and I put his ashes into Squadron Supreme which is his best-selling um, graphic novel. And I only did 5,000 copies of it. Um, and so there's only 5,000 copies of him. And I wrote the preface uh, saying he threw himself into his work. And, you know, it was just one of those things where suddenly it was thrust on me as Mark's widow to keep his, his memory going. And, uh -huh. um, you know, I just, uh, I think that after, and Mark was always about significant landmark milestones and when it got to be 20 years since he had passed away i did this huge tribute and marvel uh created this mark room all week and we had interviews and podcasts and all kinds of stuff around his legacy and i did a tribute and uh just had all kinds of performers and everybody from marvel speaking about his contributions and um that's uh, that's the, the way that kind of stirred up the pot, and I I wanted to put his ashes into some another comic book, but as it turns out, it's illegal now to do that. And wow. besides that, the plant in China. So um, I created uh, this thing called the Ashograph. So it's his autograph, and I mix the ink and the ashes into. Um, uh, 
the uh, a stamp and I stamp his autograph and I stamp commemorative pieces that Marvel made uh, and I, I sign that at the Comic Con. So the Ashograph is a living, breathing, he's in his work for oh, a time in memoriam. And he likes those old comics the best because it's those old porous newspapers. You stamp the ink, the, the, the page with his ink and the, the, the ashes rise up and the ink sinks into the paper. And he just loves that, that, that old comic book medium. It just seems so fitting that, you know, that's what he was raised on in the 60s in Wisconsin. And that's what he likes to be Mm-hmm. The best, because people bring me the darndest things, and um, to the point of my going into the schools, one of his dearest fans is a school teacher, and he came to the tribute, and I was stamping astrographs, and he had this treatise of comic reality that he wrote with his father in 1973 in a stamp, and I said, where did you get this? And he said, oh, I'm a big collector of your husband's work, and I'm... You know, I just would be an honor for me just to have you stamp this. And I was, I don't even have this. And he said, oh, you can have that. And I was like, that, he had me at a low, you know. Mm. So we got to be fast friends. And he is truly uh, a student and a scholar of my husband's work. And he knows everything, front and back. And he's such a genuine uh, lover of that genre and my husband's talent. And it's just such a gift that that's what I got out of that tribute. And now I go to his class and I talk, I, I show Mark's picture and it says 1953-1996. And I say to the kids, what does that mean? Oh, that means that's when he was born and that's when he died. And I said, so what are you going to do with your dash? So we talk about, you know, what Mark did with his dash, but what are some of their interests? What are some of their passions and how they can keep that going as a lifelong quest? Um, and they, the kids just, they, they create comic books. So there's a little mini, mini comic con. So I look at their work and try to inspire them and talk about my modeling career and how I had to, you're off the beaten path and all the girls are shaking their head and I'm thinking you know I wish I had had somebody stand up in front of me when I was in fifth grade and say mm-hmm. you're okay the way you are we don't all have to look alike as long as you're healthy and you're happy um you know go about your about your life and take care of yourself and you know eat a balanced diet work out and stay in, in a passionate vein in your life something that that really makes you Get up in the morning and and um, you know you'll you'll figure it out. No, don't let anybody tell you that you you know you can't pursue your dream because the economy or uh, New York was so dangerous in those days. My mother was like, "You're gonna get mugged and killed, and you'll be sent home in a body bag." And I was like, "Well, I'll be happy, you know, on there." But it never happened. If I had listened to her uh, and stopped myself and said, "Yeah, 1973 in New York City was a pretty..." Horrible. Was that when oh. they were doing the? Uh, there was a time um, when they people were going around um, sticking needles into passersby. Do you remember that? Oh, that was a little later. Um, that was later. Oh. 1973 was, uh, you know, it was just most of the cities had gone into rack and ruin and. Uh, they hadn't had a renaissance yet and everything was depressed and 
very old and decrepit and uh, there, there wasn't the kind of, well, you know, it's always been a place to make your dreams come true, but there wasn't a, a, a real impetus for um, the arts and it just was very run down. It was mm. really run down and it was dangerous and Son of Sam was happening. Oh, I was in elementary school. Uh-huh. I, I was, I, I uh, lived outside of the city and I remember, you know, it was very scary. Scary. And, you yeah. know, Bernard Getz and that whole thing yep. on the subway. And uh, people were, you know, um, getting, uh, you didn't even dare go into Alphabet City. I mean, it's just nothing but junkies. Mm. And uh, Tompkins Tom Square Park was uh, a shanty town. It was a shanty town. Mm. They had mm. boxes and, and tin huts, and they took over that. And um, that's what, you know, that. You know, they, that's what New York was like. But at the same time, it was exciting because we were way under the radar, so there was nothing to lose. And that's kind of the same thing that happened in England that, that the punk movement grew out of because they were depressed and they had no jobs. Mm, and they, and they no, were mad. And they were angry, exactly. Mm-hmm. So Sid Vicious came out of all that anger and all and Johnny Rotten came out of all that God Save the Queen uh, kind of stuff and that pomp and circumstance was so artificial to them. So I, you know, that that's when I came to New York and I, if I had listened to my mother and watched the news, um, I probably would have been dissuaded. But I always felt like I had a guardian angel, you know, uh, that somehow it would work out. I wasn't going to do anything stupid. I never rode the subways past 1030. I didn't mm-hmm. go into neighborhoods walking alone. If I had to walk uh, on the streets, I would walk in the middle of the street where the street lights were and walk fast. And I'm pretty big. I'm 5'10 and 168 pounds. Um, you know, I, I, I don't look like I'm a little frail butterfly. Can't really... Not that I couldn't take a bullet, you know, but... Um, <laughs> Someone might be easier to pick on. Exactly. And I know that you, you're you a spiritual woman, too, yes, based on... Yes. Yeah, tell me a little bit about what that's like. I know you recently went on a retreat. Yeah, I do. I do a lot of uh, soul-refreshing ref- activities, and I feel like... I, I always studied violin as a kid, because the public school started you on arts at in, in, when you were six and seven and you know it stayed with you and that's what I think is one of the best uh, things about the public schools is you know Mark's daughter got sent to a private school and I went to the orientation and it's like I got this for free oh. <laughs> we're paying $25,000 a year and, and I got this for free in Pittsburgh in my little public school uh, but I think one of the things that brought me to the spirituality is is that I realized that light in myself and then I acknowledge the light in, in other and it's that namaste kind of thing where the light in me honors the light in you mm-hmm. and I I see that in everyone so you know even in the my work with diversity it is spread out from being the fashion underdog as a plus size woman to they're all pretty much underdogs in this society because it's it's divisive, not diversive. And I don't think social media has united us, united us the way that we thought it was going to. And it's something that we have to work 
towards uh, looking for that commonality and not hating the differences, but embracing the differences. And um, that's suddenly my fashion platform has become a political activist platform mm-hmm. and everyone feels like a fashion underdog now um, whether you know an age size shape gender height fluidity disability you mm-hmm. name it nobody feels like they belong and so I was just like fashion diversity and the inclusive catwalk that's and I was doing a show over at the hotel which is at the crossroads of world on 42nd street and Times square and all the people who came to the brunch it was just such a diverse bunch and we for those five hours we all got along it was all around fashion music food fun embracing each other and for those five hours the world was fantastic you know Mm -hmm. and i just really got hooked on that and it and then it kind of got me into because i had gone I had a, a fashion magazine that I did um, called Mode, and I did uh, Mode on the Road, which is kind of like taking the editorial pages of this plus-size fashion magazine that was like a Vogue-executed-type magazine and taking that on the road. And that was in 1997. Mark had just died, and... Um, they sent me on the road with this magazine and I thought, you know what, this is perfect. I don't have to tell anyone I'm a widow or anything uh, if I don't want them to know. And I, it was probably the best healing that I had those four years of just going on the road, taking my little suitcase and going from city to city and staging shows and talking to women and telling them, look, this magazine exists because you subscribe. So I'm, I'm going to wait for you to pull out those subscription cards because you're going to subscribe. So I brought everything up to like 800,000. We took it from 200,000 to about 800,000 and they figured five people per magazine. So we were up to like 4 million uh, readers. Yeah. And it was really the salad days of, a plus size um, visuals, you know, because women really saw themselves as sexy and um, included and fashionable and stylish and sophisticated and all these different things that they had never before experienced. It was, you know, it was the forgotten woman. It was half sizes. It was matronly and frumpy and dumpy and you gave up and wore a caftan and suddenly <laughs> mode was like what you know so it was a big rule breaker and a big disruptor and there i was ringleader of that too jeez <laughs> it sounds like you that that really brings you a thrill right uh, yeah i know i'm, on the, really I'm on the forefront of everything and i getting getting in, infiltrated in all these industries that when i first started to to, to work out and dance and uh, go to agencies. There was an agency, and they asked me if I wanted to, to try out for the Cosmos cheerleaders. And I was like, okay. It's a soccer team that was forming, and Pele was going to be the consultant. And I kind of sort of had heard about Pele, um, but I tried out. I had red hair at the time, so uh, I was the redhead cheerleader. And that was like 1978, you know, and I was suddenly, you know, the Cosmos equivalent of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. And, um, you know, I was touring around with Pele and all that early, early, uh, before even cable, because they were trying to to introduce soccer into America. But 
because there's such long stretches of the game that they need breaks, that's why football works on TV, they couldn't find the, a network to, to have it you know, play long enough. So when cable came in, it was perfect because they, they could just, you know, uh, have the pay pay television and you paid for that channel and you watched the soccer game. So that's what kind of bumped it into the next level. Um, so, but, I'd, you know, I went from, you know, I was doing comedy, I was doing the Cosmos Cheerleader thing, I was acting and doing plays and writing comedy. And, you know, so that was kind of my formative because after Blondie and after Billy went back, I had to find my own, my own voice and my own niche. And um, and boy, did you ever! Yeah, and invent it, invent it, and in my, in my own, in my own way too. So and it was always based on me. Just hey, look, this is it. This is who I am. Don't ask me to change, because I'm not going to change. If you like the way I am, and I can fit in your, in your paradigm somehow. Don't ask me to change because I'm going to be who I am. And so, you know, it's kind of like that chicken in the pot thing. You know, don't change the chicken. Just be adamant about it. And um, you you will find your way. And you will find that little inner voice that says you're okay the way you are. Doesn't mean you're not going to improve. Doesn't mean that you're not going to learn and grow. But, you know, the one thing I learned was um, to give back because that, that really, I was so competitive. Oh, was I competitive? And I thought, that's not serving me because the modeling industry makes you competitive. And I thought, if I could just drop that not and drop the jealousy and drop the, oh, I didn't get that job and they don't love me anymore. Because that still exists, even though you're you're, you're in a niche that accepts your body, there's still competition. You know, you have to love yourself through all the rejection. So I just feel like it's been a journey of self-love and self-acceptance, and it's not what happens to you, it's your attitude towards it. And, you know, I just survived um, the death of my husband and all kinds of things that I never would have thought I could do, but it's kind of like breaking your leg. If you think about it, it's going to scare the heck out of you. But if you do it, you find a way to mm -hmm. get through it. You find, mm -hmm. and um, I think having a famous husband was actually one of those things that I benefited from because I could, the whole world mourned him. Basically mm -hmm. the whole world mourned him. Mm -hmm. But um, that whole death to your part thing, not so much when you're married to a comic guy. <gasps> I mean, mm -hmm. he still is telling me what to do and pushing my outside of the comfort zone things at all times. And, you know, I, I just rise to the occasion. I find it within myself to, to serve his memory um, because he was a great guy and he was, I was married to Captain America. Somebody said, you're Catherine America. I said, no, <laughs> I was married to Captain America. I mean, this man, the, he was a, he lived the role of Captain America. If he wrote it, he had to live it. Because in his mind, he ran with the superheroes, but in his life, he lived like a hero. So he just uh, taught me about integrity and honor and doing always doing the right thing and your fellow mm. man. And he was not he, he was not religious at all, but he certainly was very spiritual. And I think um, as I've gotten older, I realized that 
whole spirituality and that law of attraction and all of those things that um, allow you. And I feel like what I do is fashion ministry, actually, mm-hmm. you know, it really is fashion ministry because um, I am serving other people. And it just, and it, wow. I love it because it takes it out of the realm of just being fluffy fashion and it's into self-expression and personal, you know, statements of being and applied fashion and being your very best self and putting your best look forward and all those things about individuality that, that I just, that resonated with me. Way, way you back. are you are something else, Kat. You are the <laughs> definition of a zestful ager, <laughs> the queen of the zestful agers, and the way I'll you live it. with purpose and 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 live your art. Yeah, it's such a beautiful message, and I think our listeners are going to really love it. And I guess what I'd like to know now is where can they find you and learn more about you. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm doing a lot of new things with Runway the Real Way. Um, collaborating Is that a good more. place to start? Is yeah. Runway the Real mm-hmm. Way? And it's, um, so that's, so it's runwaytherealway.com. Yeah, it's on a website. It's also a Facebook page. It's an Instagram. It's a Twitter. Oh, uh, my goodness. Yeah. It's everything. So, yeah, and it's... Um, it's really, you know, I, I, I'm collaborating with uh, other uh, producers. Uh, I'm definitely getting into more sustainable fashion because uh, the fashion industry is one of the most toxic ones. And so Mother Nature is an underdog too, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm helping mm-hmm. to make people aware of uh, what what is happening in the fashion world and They're who disposable. made their clothes. Yes, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And reduce terrianism and um, regeneration and uh, zero waste and green and all the the uh, ways that it can be done. It can be done. It does not have to be as um, uh, as toxic as it is. And so that's another thing that I'm getting into. And I created another show called High Tech Moda: Fashion Forward Innovation for September. And I just bit the bullet and I bought um, uh, a uh, I shared a, a platform with three other women when um, does a software program. It's a very high tech uh, pattern making program called Taylor Nova. And we partnered with her and Pam Prevett and Yulia Gal and myself. And we're going to do high tech moda. So it's going to be in the fall. Um, on September 8th at the Hotel Roosevelt. And I'm very excited about it because in the designers who are really um, you know, trying to help uh, reduce the waste and make it a more efficient business and uh, mass customization that's happening and all the different all the different technologies that are happening, we're going to talk about it. There's not that much right now on it, but you know, I'm always been a trailblazer. So I can um, I can certainly say that if you were the uh, a plus size model in right. the '80s, yes, 
Yes. Well, so, good luck on that yes. project. Yes. You are you're an absolute inspiration and I really appreciate you spending time with me today. I it's just been a real pleasure. Yeah, I hope that everyone finds their spark and keeps on their path because that would be my wish for everyone and find it, find a mentor, find somebody who you can bounce it off of, but but stay uh, relevant and stay meaningful and uh, stay significant. And uh, the, the world will be the path to your door. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. I love to hear from my listeners. So send me an email at NicoleChristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. I would also greatly appreciate if you could hop on iTunes and rate the show. Ratings help other people find the podcast so I can share all these good juicy interviews with others. I would also invite you to become a patron of the Zestful Aging Podcast. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash zestful aging and consider making a small donation. You will be eligible for insider only goodies and behind the scenes information. And it'll help you feel good knowing that you're contributing to the zestful aging podcast. I'll look forward to sharing more juicy interviews next week on zestful aging.